Hello, welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just talk about religion, spirituality, fringe science, and paranormal claims, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. And I'm Carrie Poppy. And in this episode, we'll meet documentarian Roger Nygaard. Roger has made several independent films and directed episodes of The Mind of the Married Man, The Bernie Mac Show, and NBC's The Office, and has edited episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and The League. But he's probably most notorious for directing Trekkies and Trekkies 2, which explore the lives of Star Trek fans with sympathy and playfulness. His latest documentary is The Nature of Existence, in which he travels around the world asking gurus, scientists, psychologists, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs, atheists, agnostics, comedians, pizza chefs, and even the little girl next door why we're here and what the hell we're supposed to do about it. Today, we'll talk to Roger about his own views on the nature of existence and also probe him a bit about our shared experience in the world of acupuncture. Roger Nygaard, welcome to your favorite podcast in the history of media. That's yeah, that's true. I, I told Ross, actually, I, I will not do any podcasts that are less than number five or better <laughs> on some list somewhere. Some list somewhere. Right. Uh, and on iTunes, we just crept into number four, so... You qualify! So, we want to talk to you first off, before anything else, about acupuncture, because our listeners will have just heard our episode about us getting acupunctured, which was horrible! It was terrible. The episode was no, horrible? Not the, yeah, no, not the You didn't the phrase that well. Not the, the episode. episode is beautiful. You're so self-critical. <laughs> I'm impressed. Everyone should subscribe. But the, the experience was terrible for, for me. Uh-huh. Actually, I had a really good experience. Shut up. So, you go... <laughs> I'm the tiebreaker. <laughs> yeah. So whatever you... I choose means oh, the other no. person is wrong. Ross just won then, because you go all the time, right? <laughs> no, I've gone, I've gone multiple times in the history of my life mm-hmm. but no i don't go regularly i found the the experience to be relaxing it wasn't okay. unpleasant it was fine i don't think it's gonna set a broken bone or fix a brain tumor but it was relaxing right okay but you've gone more than one time right yes. how many times have yeah. you gone half dozen okay. well okay that's more than it was relaxing it wasn't bad that's i returned five times yeah, maybe it's the endorphin thing i was probably releasing endorphins it was more experimental let's see what happens we're, you know what more do you want for... from something yeah we <laughs> we're all for experimenting <laughs> we're all for experimenting but we usually do it the one time it wasn't six times uh, of experiments that's a lot there was no happy ending involved in the process <laughs> so maybe that explains so only six times it would have been a dozen otherwise yeah be in the hundreds by now <laughs> well it's an expensive way to keep yeah. experimenting i was gonna say yeah you, you kept going my insurance back. will pay for i think 10 treatments per year oh okay there you go. see I, I would go back if it was being underwritten i suppose oh i should mention that actually in our last show we talked about roger and how you had had to calm me down about getting the procedure done and had recommended that i see a chinese man you you played or an woman. integral role in our integrative medicine because <laughs> well done. It, it's pretty good right yeah. top of my head because you know she had had her acupuncture which she is about to detail and then you had said no you need to go to an actual chinese person and right. so, yeah older the better old chinese there's a difference i think between someone who goes and learns it and someone who grows up in a culture with it. Well, I saw a young white man. And he stabbed the hell out of you, <laughs> yes. huh? Yes. He, he dug the needle <laughs> so far deep into my neck that when I compared the pictures of me and Ross, I was like, that motherfucker. Because <laughs> Ross's were like a fraction of a centimeter in there. They're barely in his skin. And mine had to be like a quarter of an inch in my neck. Well, Ross's neck is maybe more delicate than yours. But mine was all in the belly. Uh. And 
uh, on the face? And actually, that's a good question. When you've had acupuncture done, first of all, has it always been with the same person or group no, of people? No, different. I've had, I'd say, two Caucasians and two Chinese people, and the two Chinese people were far superior in my experience. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the best is the needle in that little third eye in your forehead. That's That one's good. That's releasing something. I don't know what, but something's <laughs> getting tweaked there. I mean, the time I was in China, it's basically there they have... Uh, healthcare, you know, it's universal because it's China, right? Mm -hmm. It cost me maybe five dollars there. Oh my goodness! That's their copay, whatever they call it <laughs> wow. in China. Yeah, I'd do it for that. And the guy spent an hour with me. He did a little bit of reflexology, I guess, sort of twisting my legs and flexing me, like almost massage yoga. There's probably a word for that. And he lit up this big cigar. No. It's some kind of. He wasn't like it was smoking. It's Chinese herb. Let's uh -huh. call it. Okay. <laughs> Because, you know, sage, that looks like a big cigar. If my life depended on me identifying sage for you right now, uh -huh. I would pass and it to does. you. We do not have your sage wisdom. Oh, <laughs> you're full of I, I can't turn it off. There's some other herbs <laughs> I could identify easily. Uh-huh. Marijuana. <laughs> right. It's marijuana. That's an easy one. Uh-huh. Where were the needles applied when you had your acupuncture? Did they all use the same system? Because there's different systems. I, I guess a combination. You know, there was some around. I was for back pain. So there was some around in the back, but also like behind the knee, I uh -huh. guess. I got those. She got that. Yeah, uh, that, joints that are really big. That really scary. Does it uh, hurt? The ears. But any, uh, did any of that hurt? No. And I hate to be racist about this whole thing, but my sample group, you It's know, always good when you start your sentence with, I hate to be racist. <laughs> Caucasians. You know going well. The two Caucasians who put the needles in me, I feel like they were, they went deeper and were less about just uh, stimulating the, the surface of the skin and more about pricking you. I'm having a real hard time holding in that that's what she says during this story. <laughs> so what about the, the central claim of acupuncture is that there are these chi meridians flowing through the body and that's what you're actually stimulating when you put the needles in. What do you think of that? Uh, what does a chi meridian mean? I mean, I know there are nerves flowing through our body. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll buy that, mm -hmm. but yeah. I don't know what a chi meridian means. <laughs> well, chi is, is the energy. It's the life force. And, um, well, it's... there's electricity that flows through our nerves that right. we can measure yeah. how do you measure a life force mm -hmm. i mean okay so i'm kind of skeptical <laughs> of that part of it i'm skeptical of things that have no way to measure mm -hmm. someone tells you you know casper the friendly ghost is in your arm really how do you know so you can kind of put aside their explanations for what's going on and just enjoy the procedure itself. Well, yeah, I think there are a lot of things we give explanations to, and we call them mystical, that are fully explainable physiologically. Mm -hmm. I mean, psychics are just great readers. Mm -hmm. Right. They read people, you know, and they, they use their instinct. They, they use that part of their brain that we call instinct that a lot of us have disconnected from because society has taught us not to trust our instinct. Mm -hmm. But if you do, it's a very powerful computer that you have in your brain so back to acupuncture similarly you know if you're putting if you're stimulating your body in some way it can certainly have an effect of some kind if you want to call it a chi meridian or you want to call it endorphins it's just different names for whatever the effect is well right. speaking of the power of the brain that brings to mind the placebo response and do you feel that that could be playing a role absolutely the placebo effect works it works on me i even when i know i'm using it Mm -hmm. It still works. Mm -hmm. I'll take uh, vitamins sometimes when I feel sick. And just the process of putting something in my body to help me, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not going to hurt me, right? But I I just, I'm sure the placebo effect is a huge part of that. That's honest. Fair enough. You know, there are some, some new studies coming out, I think out of Harvard Medical School, where they started testing placebos where people know that they're getting placebos, which is kind of new ground. 
And it turned out that um, people do benefit even when the bottle said, this is a placebo pill, it does nothing. It would still respond better than the control group. Right? <laughs> I think we want to try to control our environment. And because we feel when we feel powerless, we, we gives us anxiety. And one way to try to control our environment is to try if we feel a, a, a symptom, we want to treat that symptom in some way, even if it has no actual appreciable effect. Just the process of treating it gives you an effect, which we call the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. And our bodies can are very strong at self healing. Deepak Chopra is essentially, you know, selling a lot <laughs> of nonsense. But one of the things he's got right is I think the mind-body connection does exist. And if you tell yourself to get better, oftentimes it will happen. Yeah, depending on what your symptom is. If you have something like cancer, probably not the way to go. But. So when people go into spontaneous remission with cancer, which can happen, yeah. sometimes their body has retaken control and destroyed the cancer on its own. That's probably true on a small scale. I'm thinking more in terms of if you've gone to the doctor and been diagnosed with something, which means the cancer is pretty far along. Further along, the more difficult it is to eradicate. Right. I mean, I think the danger, though, is that people think that they can forego contemporary medicine in favor of these sorts of mind cures when sometimes they can't. Well, yeah, the best would probably be a combination of all possible avenues. Sure. You know, fight, fight your battle on all fronts. Mm -hmm. right. Ross is shrugging. It's uh, like, ah, oh, I don't know. That was fine. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, you share kind of a similar bent to us in that you kind of just go and jump in and uh, try things out. Is that kind of what made you try acupuncture in the first place? Yeah, people recommended it. Uh, okay, I'll try it. I'll try anything. I mean, I'll listen, even like after making my film and people were trying to pin me down. What do you believe? I'm still open to the best possible argument. If you can make a great argument about the god ball, I'll listen. Do people usually say it in that constipated voice? What do you believe? <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me, I think. I want to learn more about the god ball. <laughs> <laughs> Just put it on my Facebook page today. My beliefs are, are provisional. Mm -hmm. And they constantly change my entire life because it's based on the amount of evidence. Yeah. yeah. Provisional is a great word. I wish more people used it, especially for their beliefs. You know, that reminds me of when I was a believer, when I was a Christian in early college. I found this quote that I thought was amazing from a Christian philosopher where he said something along the lines of, we should be able to drop our faith anytime it goes against uh, an argument or evidence. And I was like, what a great quote. And I like wrote it down and I was showing it to someone and they said, I, th I think you have this wrong, and went and pulled it up, and he had said, we should not drop our faith just because we find it. And I had read oh. it the way that I had wanted to <laughs> wow. read it. Yeah. What, what a difference one word can make. <laughs> yeah. It's the confirmation bias, yeah. right? You only see evidence that supports your existing belief system, and you ignore the evidence that mm. contradicts it. I forgot to mention, in the spirit of us showing up, we showed up here today at your place. Is it all right if I take a picture of the setup here? Yeah. You keep oh, a yeah. very nice, clean office. So. We are yeah, in the world-famous Petal House, my uh, world headquarters. Well, speaking of your movie, Roger, it is Roger, right? That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a clip from your movie. Let's listen to that. The god of Spinoza, the god of Einstein, is our ability to understand nature. That's how we worship what is sacred, what is holy, by trying to find the deepest understanding of nature. Our bias against this is so strong, you can hear it in the word supernatural, above the natural, as if our fantasies and our little stories that we make up, whether we made them up 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or this week, as if our stories could compete with the reality of nature as revealed by science. 
So tell us what your your goal in making The Nature of Existence was. The reason I made the film was because I had no choice. I can't imagine not having made it because that's what I do, right? Mm. My life is, my purpose is to be a filmmaker. The concept for the film was something I was obsessed with, existentialism. Those two things, me being a filmmaker and my obsession with existentialism, finally intersected. And once they did, I couldn't not make the film. I mean, you know, how far back do you want me to go? It started when I was seven years old, when I first started thinking skeptical thoughts. Let's hear that. <laughs> what well, happened it, at seven? In the, in the film, you mentioned you were raised in an Episcopalian household. Yeah, we went to church every Sunday. Religion was a part of our life, but I didn't, I mean, I was a kid. All I wanted to do was go outside and catch turtles and throw sticks in the water <laughs> and, and swing and, and run around. It didn't quite make as much sense to me as a kid. I mean, everybody was doing it. That's what they, they, you know, they do, and you're part of a social group, so you do what everyone's doing, so you go to church. But I could not wait to get out of church and go play, eat something, you know, because they would starve us. Mm -hmm. we, we would have, uh, we'd go to brunch after church. Right, we did too. It's like, what yeah, a mistake. You say, you say in the film that you're counting down the minutes to pancakes. I was counting, mm -hmm. ca counting down the minutes to fettuccine Alfredo. Pancakes are good too. Our family tradition was pancakes or waffles, you know, that genre. Waffles? That milieu of food. You're going to ruin this movie for me. Waffles are not mentioned. And French toast. And sometimes... Uh, this. Whole this interview's over. I was guaranteed that it was pancakes That every was number time. one, though. No, if you had to rank them, pancakes are number one. For me, I got a Sunday prize. Like, my mom would buy some, like, kind of candy item or something, like, every Sunday. So, yeah, that's what we look forward to. See, wouldn't that be smart if you went to church and they gave you something instead of you have to go there and hand over your money? Right. You know, I don't know if that would be smart. Well, but the reward factor, you know, would yeah. be there. Because if you want to encourage behavior, change behavior, you reward positive behavior. But they've got people on a sort of reward punishment loop. You give them the guilt and then reward them for the guilt. Yeah, you get salvation. It seems to work out a little better. I'll be honest. Saved in, but you're you're being saved from the to, this, to be redeemed after death. Right. Right. <laughs> well, like Steve Fromstein, who's the, one of the comedians in my film, the way he mm -hmm. put it was that who created this uh, thing we're being saved from? God created hell, right. right? And then he sent his son Jesus to save us from hell this thing he created so it was kind of like a family business right like if, the mafia if he hadn't created the hell to begin with he wouldn't have to save us from it right right so yeah, and he created the problem and the solution yeah why couldn't he just create us to all be nice and not need hell well then you want to have agency that's how the mormons say free will mm -hmm. we're mormons by the way like you look like mormons <laughs> thank you yeah i went to church this morning i'm a good mormon so you met like a ton of people. What, like 200 people that you interviewed? I interviewed 170 people for the film. Okay. Yeah. Who were you most excited to meet? I was most excited to meet the Pope, I think. Oh, and then you didn't. And it was, yeah, it was Pope Metis Interruptus, <laughs> which I detail in the film. I got within about seven feet of him. And yeah, I saw you kind of yell the question out to him. Over a loudspeaker, was it? <laughs> Just me. Or cupped hands? <laughs> Just said, hey, Pope! Hey, Pope! He's like, I don't answer to Pope. <laughs> but also the Pope of Atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins, I was uh, kind of wanted to be the Pope and the Pope of Atheists. Yeah, you did. And then compare and contrast. What was that like? On a scale of sexiness where like zero is Janet Reno and ten is Richard Dawkins, I guess. I don't even know where to go All else. right, you just <laughs> rig the scale you, right there. Where ten for me is Richard Dawkins, how sexy was that for you? <laughs> If he was a female who was 18, uh -huh. it would probably be different, but he's, he's an older guy, and so it's not, so sexiness may be the wrong word for me, but in terms of excitability, <laughs> how about uh -huh. that? It was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was, it was a 10-ish. 
it was kind of rushed because he uh, when I got there he said you know I've only got I only have about an hour I've got I've got to be at the bank at noon and so we got there at, <laughs> what at, kind of accent it's my best uh, English accent it's okay I can't do accents so you know it takes us 10 minutes to set up and so and in about 11:15 the camera started rolling i had 45 minutes to ask him 2 hours worth of questions because all my interviews generally took about 2 hours to get mm. through 85 questions yeah so i was just firing questions at him rapidly and luckily unlike the pope he's ready with answers <laughs> oh, right yeah he's a soundbite machine <laughs> everything he says is quotable is there a god no Almost certainly not. The God idea is very emotionally appealing for various reasons. It's very nice to feel that you're being looked after. And I think another reason is that a lot of people don't understand the nature of scientific explanation. And so they think that you actually need a God to explain existence, which is actually doubly wrong. Not only do you, do you not need one, it's positively counterproductive if you're trying to understand uh, the nature of existence. Many people say that they don't believe in God or the Bible, but there's got to be something. There's got to be something, yes. Well, of course there's something. There's a hell of a lot, and we don't yet understand it all. Science is working on it, and when we discover it, it's going to be even more wonderful than what we know at present. And God knows that's wonderful. God knows. That's wonderful enough. So it was one of the <laughs> best interviews ever for, for not just me, but as a documentarian. As it got closer to noon, as he finished a question... I would come right in with another question right away, and it's like throwing down the gauntlet. You know, when you throw someone like him a, ch a challenge, they can't say no to a challenge, right. so he had to answer the next question. So I kept him there till about twelve fifteen. You know, uh. and he was late for his. He had to sign some mortgage papers or something at the mm. bank. And finally, he said, "Oh, I must go!" And he just like bolted out of the room. They're probably reacquisitioning his house right now. Thanks to you. <laughs> Thanks to you. Um, well, he does, uh, he does turn some people down, though. He won't debate creationists. With Dawkins, I, uh, I sent emails and got no response. You know, maybe a half dozen emails, different email addresses and different people hmm. and, and nothing. So then I just tried calling because I was getting desperate. My travel date was coming up, and I called the, uh, the main phone line at Oxford University. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and and someone answered. Here's my I'll do my bad impression again. Yes, oh please do. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Said hi, uh, Richard Dawkins office please. One moment, sir. Ring ring it's ring. Improving a little bit. <laughs> and That's then good. you're just getting used to it. You're acclimating <laughs> to it. And then I hear this, "Hello?" Oh, hi. I'm looking for Richard Dawkins. This is he. Oh no, it's back again. <laughs> <laughs> And he answered his own phone, and so I'm, oh, hi, I'm, my name's Roger Nygaard, a filmmaker, I'd love to interview you, uh, Julia Sweeney recommended me, and so I think that was the key. Oh, yeah. I dropped the right name, because yeah. I just, I'd interviewed Julia Sweeney well the done. month before, and she had said to me, oh, you must interview Richard Dawkins, he's wonderful, I met him at a convention in Iceland, blah, 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 and so then he said, oh, I love Julia Sweeney, all right, when, and then we set a date, and then it was done. Great. That's great. Went to his house and interviewed him in his, in his uh, dining room. I've got to pretend to make a documentary and be like, I have to do a six-hour interview with you. I can't. I and can't I've already it. talked to Julia Sweeney and <laughs> right. Richard. Uh, Roger Nygaard. Yeah. I've got the the I'll microphones. You. All you need yeah. is a camera, and you're ready. Yeah. Well, and to fly to England. But speaking of the Pope of atheists, do you consider yourself an atheist or an agnostic or a skeptic or an Episcopalian? Well, if you're, if you're asking me which word I prefer, I yeah. like rationalist the best okay. out of the pantheon of choices, because I'm in favor of rationality. And I'm against irrationality. Mm -hmm. And no one 
has ever been able to fight me on that. I was going to say, that's not something you really argue Who's going to say, wait a minute, I'm irrational, and I'm offended at that, right? right? So I win every argument whenever that comes up. You know, if the atheism has gotten this pejorative sense in some people's mind for some reason, and uh, even so, it, it even evokes religion, whereas rationalism just, and the word rational, just evokes being rational, uh-huh. right? But that's a double-edged sword, right? Because then when people do want to know whether you believe in God, you're not giving them an answer. Even And that comes up, you know, what do you believe, right? Mm-hmm. People throw that out to me all the time at screening the, the toilet, of my film. Yeah. <laughs> I immediately respond by saying, well, you first need to define for me what you mean by God. Mm-hmm. Right. Part of the problem that, that we have, you know, that people have, is that when they're debating what is God? Is he? Is he? Does he exist? They're talking about something different. Mm-hmm. They're using the same word, and in their mind, have a completely different concept of what they're talking about. So they're mm-hmm. not even talking about the same thing. Right? They talk mm-hmm. past each other. So if you tell me what you mean by God, then I can even begin to answer that question. Mm-hmm. I can't even answer that question. Do you believe in God? If you say, uh, "Do you believe in the God of the Old Testament that approves of incest?" I find that far fetched. Mm-hmm. But if you say, "Do you believe in the God as Einstein believed in in God?" You know, Einstein's God was Spinoza's God, Mm -hmm. which is basically God equals the laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. I find that pretty easy to believe in the laws Mm -hmm. of the universe. Sure. So somewhere in that spectrum, most people fall. (laughs) Ross is nodding again. I can't argue against that. He used the word (laughs) rationalism. I'm defenseless. I know. If you want to defeat anybody in a religious (laughs) argument... Go the rational route. <laughs> so was it easy to keep an open mind while you were talking to all these people that you may have disagreed with? Uh, it's not always easy, but I have to. I'm curious because, you know, this film, you traveled to great lengths, like physically, to different countries, talked to many different people. Of the wow. 170 people I interviewed, 140 made the final cut of the movie, The Nature of Existence. Although... I think just almost all of them do appear in the companion series that I finished after the film. So they did see the light of day eventually, some of them who didn't make the final cut of the film. When you were asking these questions about the nature of existence, these really core questions, was it because you were looking for the answers yourself or you were just fascinated by the answers that people put out there? Oh, good question. I mean, probably more of the latter because I'm fascinated by human behavior primarily. And it was more of confirming the beliefs or the doubts or the suspicions I had held when I set out Mm. on this journey as a rational person and and a skeptical person of various claims that people make. But I did learn from people. I mean, having said that, I mean, I even learned from the people I disagreed from the most sometimes Mm. Religion was invented or evolved as a code for living, primarily. And the whole idea of explaining the supernatural is almost secondary. Maybe is way down the list. Daniel Gilbert, who is one of the psychologists I interviewed, he, he teaches at Harvard and wrote the book Stumbling on Happiness. Which is great. He said that, it's, this is in the companion series, that when you ask people why they're religious, and you make a list of all the reasons why, these existential questions, is there a God, and, you know, etc., fall very low on the list. At the top of the list, the reason people are religious is because of community. It gives mm-hmm. them a sense of community. Mm-hmm. They have Makes a place sense. to go and hang out where they have friends who have to listen to them complain, <laughs> who bring them soup when they're sick, and this is more important. No, that I, makes I total sense. I think that's what brought Ross to Mormon Church this morning. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, not because I was looking for any kind of answers or tearing my hair out the night beforehand. What's my purpose in life? Uh, it was because, you know, oh, there's a group of people that are expecting to see me. They just texted me the night before, you know. But but going back to uh, the nature of existence, I think that's the, the tie that binds us here is that, you know, we get into these things because we're really curious just about people, the psychology of belief. Now, you said you learned a lot of things. You probably learned to like a lot of people that you thought maybe you wouldn't have liked. It's really easy to like people. You know, it's within us. It's built within us. We're social creatures. And so when I spent two hours with somebody, give or take, asking them deep questions, you know, where's the afterlife? What is the soul? You bond with somebody in a different way than you would as if you're just talking about business or the weather. These surface things that we mostly talk about with each other lead uh, less quickly anyway to this making of a deeper bond of a friendship. So I bonded with a lot of people all around the world. And it feels good. You were talking to like a, a taxi cab driver, and he, he seemed to really appreciate that you were asking him these questions, because I'm sure he gets nothing like that with his usual uh, occupants. More than once, I had somebody tell me, uh, uh, specifically, there was this pastor I interviewed at the Cathedral of Hope in Dallas, Texas. Oh, right. Which is the largest gay megachurch, hmm. apparently, on the planet. How and, many gay megachurches are there? Uh, <laughs> this one fills up. A uh, 600-seat auditorium twice uh, Sunday. That's good. Full to capacity. And at the end of our, our of and at the end of our interview, she said to me, "Who are you? This was amazing. <laughs> I haven't had a discussion like this since I was in the seminary." Oh right, I remember that. Yeah. Probably also, if you run a, a church like that, a lot of your time is probably taken up with just fighting hostility and dealing with douchiness and raising money. Right. And money. Yeah, sure. so it's probably rare that the you know pastor gets to go back into the things that drew him or her into that business in the first place. I have some questions for you from our listeners. Are you excited? I am, On a scale uh, of one to ten. Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This question's from listener Gary in Sacramento. Who practices what they preach the most? Boy, well, you know, nobody practices what they preach. We're we're born hypocrites. <laughs> what about the Jains? They go the... around with the the brooms and everything. Yeah, well, don't who... help him. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the least hypocritical? Would be a good way to phrase that question. Yes, sure. Who's the least hypocritical? <laughs> don't help him. Uh, the scientists, of course, but in terms, in a religious sense, it depends. You know, it's hard to even answer that question until you define what our goals are. What is your goal in life, or what you know is our goal? happiness is our goal peace among all people is our goal for our tribe to overrun all the other tribes and jainists who preach nonviolence and who are vegetarians they live in a way that they practice what they preach but they also don't increase their numbers very drastically they're a very small sect mm-hmm. whereas some of the most hypocritical you could say sects or like the catholic church is a great example you know they preach no no condoms, no birth control, and their numbers explode exponentially compared to other religious sects, right? Very mm-hmm. successful sects. And I don't know, I mean, there's like, <laughs> what percentage of Catholics have used birth control? I think it's well over 90%. Mm-hmm. So they're all hypocrites if they, in fact, don't do what they're supposed to do that their religion dictates. So who's the least hypocritical out of all of them? You know, I don't know. You don't know. No. That's useless. Well, I, your first response was the scientists. The scientists, Because yeah. they don't make any claims about anything being a, a true dogma that they should live by, right? As long as that's, yeah, if that's how they live their life. Okay. And typically, you know, they're more likely to be that way 
than someone who lives with the magical or, or religious sense. I once got into an argument with somebody once who said that um, scientists were more wish-fulfillment thinking people. I think sometimes people just say things hoping that you'll agree with them. <laughs> you know, they haven't really thought it out yet. Like, I, I just wonder what the person was thinking like. I think it might be one of those things that's just supposed to offend. You know, a lot of people oh. will say like, well, it, it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. Right. And just like that sentence is supposed to make you go, oh, okay. I guess you're right. <laughs> we got to define uh, your terms. What does the word faith mean? Right? right. I mean, can you tell me what is the distinction between faith and stupidity? I think stupidity is like, you know, a lack of knowledge. Whereas I think faith is like these kind of gap fillers that we put in the place of missing knowledge that allows us to act even without knowledge. To a certain extent, faith is necessary mm -hmm. because we don't have perfect knowledge of anything, but I think we should try to Make use that filling material. As small as exactly. See, I think the word is misused and it's misapplied because faith is essentially belief without evidence. Yeah. And to say that I have faith my car will start is an incorrect use of the word. Hmm. You have a provisional belief that your car will start based on all the times in the past where you've gone out and your car has started. Right. Right? Hmm. It's not about faith. Faith is believing something with no evidence to support the fact that it will happen. Faith and stupidity are sort of, you could say, I mean, maybe the word it, willful is the one different thing. Mm -hmm. You know, faith is a willful stupidity. Which right? of course <laughs> seems much worse. Please send all your complaint emails too. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that depends on who's using the word faith and how they're using it. You know. True. A lot, right. of, a lot of people define faith as what gets me up in the morning or right. something silly and, you know, meaningless like that. Well, not that that's meaningless, but you know, it's hard to pin down in terms of any kind of They probably mean logical to content. use the word hope hmm. is what gets them up in the morning. So once again, they're misusing the word or, you know, some brain chemistry wakes them up in the morning. Or their alarm clock gets them up in the morning. Yeah. But what gets them to work is they're hungry and they need to, need to you know, be able to buy food. They're conflating ideas in some sense. So it seems like you kind of jumped into this tangled web of different definitions for all these, you know, complicated concepts. That's where it has to start. So I started every one of the chapters in my film by asking people to define the term. Whether it's faith or the soul or purpose, existence, God, define the term. And then the first thing you find out is everybody's got a different idea of what these words mean. And would you debate them at all on it, or you would just kind of work with their definition and c carry on the conversation? My goal was not to debate people and try to change their mind. It was just to collect all this data, collect okay. all these answers, all these thoughts, all these definitions, put them together side by side so a viewer could watch and decide for themselves or draw the conclusion that I think is there's only one rational conclusion ultimately that can be drawn from the film. Really? But you won't dot, spell dot, that. Dot. <laughs> but you won't spell that out for people. They always want you to, but you won't. That's true. You got to do the work, you know? It's like you can't hand someone the answer on this test. You have to arrive there yourself. You can't can't give someone a purpose in life. They have to arrive there, but you can give them the clues, you can help them, you can educate them, give them the tools. And the film, I think, gives people more tools, a lot of tools, a lot of clues, a lot of stepping stones to get you to that understanding. Now, you said that uh, you kind of made this film almost out of a compulsion, like you had to do this. You know, you wouldn't be you if you didn't make the film. How much of it was for you and how much of it was for everybody else? Well, the film was ultimately just for me. It was my journey. It was a journey of discovery and of enlightenment. And the viewer gets to go along and you get to learn what I learn as I learn it. What often happens is people tell me afterwards, 
I'm so confused. Your film has confused me. <laughs> and I say, great, that's exactly what I wanted to happen. That means your brain is working. And I feel like by putting all the perspectives next to each other, they kind of get to debate one another without even being in the same room. And I feel like good documentaries do that. The, uh, uh, the person watching feels like they're debating with each of the subjects instead of the narrator or the director debating with the subjects. Right. If at the end of the film I had had made a choice and picked a winner, right. you know, Buddhism is correct, then <laughs> it would have tainted everything that came before. You would have seen the film as tainted by a Buddhist. I didn't want to prejudge for people. I want them to do so on their own. And now, it seems like you had a lot of questions pre-written that you kind of put to everybody. How many of those kind of basic questions did you have, and then how much did you add to that, just depending on who you were talking to? Well, every interview, you sort of uh, have to be flexible and improv a little bit and go where your subject is going. But I did have a very specific 85 questions, which you can see if you want. It's on my website at thenatureofexistence.com. Wow. Sorry, what was that website again? Thenatureofexistence.com. I've got to go there and buy some DVDs. Which you can do. You can get my film... I can get it there? ...on my website. Oh, my goodness. I sure did. God, I wish that I had a shirt... That said, the nature of existence. You can get that there as well. Oh, my God. You can also comment. You can answer those 85 questions, as a lot of people have done on the website. And, and you know your answer will be posted with everybody else's answers. Um, speaking of those questions, uh, Roger, can religion and science coexist? Well, religion and science do coexist because they have, and they continue to coexist, but they don't get along. It's like they both want the top bunk. And only one person can have the top bunk, right? The problem is that's emerged is that originally human beings used religion to explain everything. And as time went on, the scientific method continued to explain things, which encroached further and further upon the territory of religion. Right. It seems that as science makes progress, religion kind of backs up and then regroups and finds kind of a new uh, bunker in which to defend you know, its position. And then they eventually adopt science's position and say, well, that's, that was always our that's position. That's what we always thought. Right, and then bunker up somewhere else. Um, so what was the scariest moment while you filmed The Nature of Existence? I know what the weirdest moment was because I've seen the gay song. But what's the <laughs> scariest moment? The scariest moment is writing checks all the time to pay for this uh, hobby of mine, <laughs> wondering if I'm ever going to see it again. The reason I was able to do that is because the process itself, the journey itself, was so worth it that even if I never finished the film, it was well worth the expenditure of traveling around the world and meeting all these people and having amazing conversations and eating deliciously different food all the time. And I mean, usually there was, someone's asking, you know, wondering if, you know, in some country, did, you know, was there ever a scary moment? And I found actually hmm. never. Not even in China? The scariest moment was in uh, England. I, I mean, I was hassled more in the United States and, and England than anywhere in the world. Hmm. Okay. Where are you going with that camera? You can't film here. That kind of stuff. Yeah, because we've heard of YouTube. People are... I, I, and, and reality TV. Yeah, people are yeah. afraid that there's going to be a humiliation right. happening. You know, like when I was in China, I was never hassled once, and people were very open and would talk about whatever I asked, and I attribute that to the lack of uh, reality shows in China. Right. How many people did you bring along with you everywhere you went? Paul Tarantino was my co-producer and co-editor, and Billy Sullivan was another co-producer, and he is also the composer of the film. It was basically the three of us, hmm. mainly. There was a couple others. Generally, it was me and one other person. 
and sometimes it was just me traveling with my camera and microphones. Okay, setting up your own shots. It, you know, it, I prefer conversations about controversial topics. I love talking about religion, politics, abortion, whatever. But most people don't want to. Mm. And so it's sometimes hard to start those conversations. I know Carrie and I steer clear of uh, controversy. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's why you guys are interesting to me. Because you're not afraid to go there. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's the point of living if you're not afraid to talk about living? Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. spread the gospel on that one. Uh, speaking of your gospel, actually, I have another question from a listener um, from Coleman. Uh, what is the one thing you want the rest of the world to know about your own faith or worldview, if you had to pick one thing? Well, faith, again, faith, if, if you define world the word... Worldview, worldview. Don't define faith again. Faith is... <laughs> Faith is the problem in that question. But yeah, if we'll go with worldview, my worldview is very Eastern. And I did learn a lot from the Eastern philosophies where they preach to take it one day at a time. Stay in the moment. It's about being in the moment. Happiness is in the moment. Because we, we have evolved a frontal lobe as human beings, we understand the concept of time, the future, and the past. And because of that, we are able to create anxiety for our brains, thinking about the mistakes we, we made last week or the uh, mistakes that we're going to make next week. Either way, it creates anxiety, whereas if you stay in the moment, you're peaceful and happy. So when people are doing things like yoga or meditation or, or intense prayer, it's keeping them focused in the moment by focusing on something other than their own thoughts. It's like stopping the thinking. When you have trouble sleeping, it's because you can't stop thinking. And it's usually because you're worried about some mistakes you made and what trouble that's going to create in the future. When they say, oh, I slept like a baby. Well, babies don't worry about the past and the future. They're <laughs> still in the terrible, moment. It's a terrible saying. Babies wake up like every 45 minutes and yell at you. <laughs> well, they're hungry. Yeah, well, it's, like saying, it's a bad saying. It's saying like, uh, you know, someone eats like a bird because birds are just <laughs> constantly eating everywhere they go. That's true. And, and eating vomit. Yeah. Uh. What else can we debunk right now? <laughs> Other common idioms. Or the sleep of the just. How about that? Okay, there we go. If you're... That makes sense. If you're not guilty, mm -hmm. feeling guilty about something you did wrong in the past, you sleep better. Mm -hmm. Right? I, I sleep pretty well because I don't feel... I've sort of, I guess, conquered guilt. You know, they say guilt is anger turned inward at yourself. Right. It takes a lot of brain cycles to process all that guilt and frustration. So my worldview is stay in the moment. Fair. That's what you'd want people to know? Yeah. If you want to be happy. And isn't that the whole point? Oh, is, our listeners don't want to be happy. Well, a lot of people have trouble being happy, and they feel guilty when they're happy, and so they find ways to not be happy. But it's okay to be happy. It's actually a cool thing. It's cre I find I'm, it increases my creativity when I'm happy. You know, there's always the tortured artist thing right? right that works for some people and that they create interesting art but that's not my thing i prefer being the happy creative artist yeah right and a lot of religions seem to promote a certain asceticism you know where if you're feeling happy you're doing something wrong and you need to be feeling a little <laughs> guilty about uh about life but, but right padre pio said love equals suffering huh and i i don't think so for me not for me right i much prefer to uh, enjoy each moment as much as possible, have as many laughs and as few tears as possible. Got to have tears though, otherwise you don't you don't appreciate the laughs. So yeah, both and appreciate both. 
Our listener Brandon asks, what is the most unifying thing that brings people together in a peaceful manner? Well, the most unifying thing is a shared goal of some kind. And so that's why wars are common. It brings people together. (laughs) You create a boogeyman because we're we're tribal. The whole concept of peace on Earth is, is not only is it unreasonable, it's impossible. It won't happen. It, I mean, look at every single one of your favorite movies. There needs to be a conflict. Somebody's fighting it. somebody over something. It's always about conflict. There's no plot if there's no conflict. Right. We love conflict. Without it, we will create it in our lives. Some people more than others. Some people are far more dramatic than others. <laughs> so if that's the case, you just have to go with it. Acceptance is the first step. So if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are ways, you know, to for us in our modern-day society to channel this desire for conflict, right? And uh, football, watching football. That's mm. a catharsis that works for the masses. So they don't have to go out and, and beat up their neighbor. Ah, mm-hmm. Violent video games. That's another catharsis. <laughs> and, and gossip, like... Because then you're you're finding a connection with the person you're talking to by making that other person that's not mm. in the room the other. Yeah, you they're unified by a common enemy or a common focus or a common mm. point of view. So you're saying don't try to achieve some sort of Shangri-La where we don't have any conflict because that's just impractical and not not going to happen. Well, it's just not human nature. It doesn't happen. I mean, even in you know churches are full of conflict, right? If religion was going to conquer conflict it would have done it had a chance it's had many chances to i mean you you, let's give credit to the jainists again right because they have in a sense conquered conflict and the buddhists Mm -hmm. you've never seen a war started by a buddhist or Mm -hmm. a jainist Mm -hmm. so okay let's give them credit for that took i had to interview a lot of buddhists to find interesting ones to put in the movie (laughs) really and this isn't meant to be insulting it's just the fact that they all want to be the same Mm. They're all trying to be like the Buddha. They're mm-hmm. wearing the same clothing. They shave their head. They all look the same. They want. They're trying to be the same, and it's just not interesting to right. me anyway. You know, human <laughs> human nature is about one of our parts of our human nature is about creative expression. And if you're going to ask me, what is the point, Roger? The point I think that the reason why human beings are here, if you want to give us a reason, whether it's evolution or whatever, we're here to create to express ourselves creatively in some way. And for you, it's doing a podcast, among other things. For me, it's making my movies, my documentaries. And when you find people who are depressed, a lot of times they are not creating anything. If you give them some paper and some paints, their their mood will change dramatically. Is there some point at which you say, I'm going to stop looking for answers in this one particular religion or idea? Well, for me, it's as soon as I catch somebody in a lie... I no longer trust them. You know, there, there was a guy I went fishing with this guy. This uh, I went on vacation last month. I went up to northern Minnesota. I was fishing on Battle Lake with this guy who was a retired geography teacher. And he said that you don't have to be really smart to be successful in life. You just have to be reliable. If you show up on time every time, mm-hmm. then you will do really well in life. Well, that's pretty good advice. You know, knowledge is good. But it's more about reliability in terms of who you hire for a job and, and who you want in your life. I can't argue with that. No, Ross is not. <laughs> I'm just nodding again, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, we close out every episode of our investigations with uh, these rankings where we ask each other uh, what we think the pseudoscience ranking was, uh, the creepiness rating, and so on. So I want to ask you, of the traditions that you studied and interviewed, 
which had the highest creepiness ranking. Where were you most creeped out? Every time I walked into a place where people were bowing down to a piece of stone, it made me a little creeped out. Okay. And that happened in almost every religion. <laughs> Although the, the place I was sort of most elated was just a collection of stones. It was Stonehenge, for some reason. <laughs> and maybe it's because no one was really worshipping those stones anymore, and it's more <laughs> the ancient... They're, they're so ancient, and they're still there, and it's so iconic, and I've seen that image so many times, and to, to be someplace that as iconic as Stonehenge was really a treat. The creepiness factor was gone from Stonehenge. Mm. Okay. Of all the religions that you looked into, which had the highest pocket drainer value? What cost the most? <laughs> Well, it, it only takes a visit to the Vatican to confirm that the Catholic religion is the, the wealthiest. I mean, the Vatican is just amazing. How much did they want from you to interview the Pope? It, it was a not-so-veiled price tag of $20,000 to sit down. I'd have 20 minutes with the Pope. Wow. So it's about a grand a minute. So which would you say had the highest danger rating? Well, danger to whom? You know, danger to other sects? The lowest danger would, again, be the Jainists, right? But the highest danger would be those who want to harm other groups, other tribes. And I think proselytizing is dangerous. The religions that encourage proselytizing, trying to go out and force their way onto other people. Missionaries that went out and tried to change other societies who had been functioning just fine <laughs> for maybe 200,000 years, maybe longer. Let's phrase it this way. If you had a very impressionable person who was saying, I want to go talk to one of these people that you interviewed um, to find a new belief set, who would you tell them not to go see? <laughs> well, anybody who says they've got the truth. Okay. <laughs> You're not a, a naming names kind of guy, are you? <laughs> I would go talk to somebody who is searching for the truth, which would be someone in the scientific field. Hmm. I mean, ultimately, I guess they're my gurus. I found the most kinship. I was the most enthralled, the most excited listening to the scientists talk. The religious clergy are really kind of dull because they're just re re regurgitating scripture. They're not trying to come up or seeking out new things, new ideas, new planets, new mm. uh, string theories, new whatever. Well, speaking of science, uh, that's another rating we have is our pseudoscience value. Which religion would you say had most divorced itself from that scientific pursuit? <laughs> well, they're, they're all divorced from the scientific pursuit. <laughs> you know, I guess it's degrees, right? Yeah, which is the most divorced? The one that's maybe based the furthest back in history. And, uh, you know, the Jainists are one of the oldest religions. I've heard it claimed that the Jainists are the oldest continuously living practiced religion hmm. on the planet, but it's probably right up there with paganism and uh, Hinduism, although it's, you know, it was founded oh, around the same time yeah. as Hinduism. That's... Yeah, so it's really, the, the litmus test is how far is it from reality, from rationality? And which one's the farthest? <laughs> we will make you say this. <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, uh, Scientology. Who is this guy? How about Scientology? They okay. believe that, Scientology. Uh, you know, aliens, you know, landed in a, in a volcano and... Yes. That's insane. Etc. I mean, just start right there. Aliens oh, am I not allowed to say that? <laughs> Gary gives me this look. 
I was just so happy he named a name. <laughs> he did. He Probably did. the most dangerous are the ones that have destroyed themselves because they were so dangerous. You know, the Hale Bob Comet cult. That's pretty not dangerous to other people, though. Once uh, you've eradicated yourselves. Uh, so, what was your favorite moment while making The Nature of Existence? Well, the best moment in making any film is when you premiere it for the first time and see it with an audience. Oh, I was there! I was part of it! <laughs> for the premiere? I was at the LA premiere. Your actual premiere was You're one of them. Yeah, actually, you know, we did had many, I guess, different types of premieres in different cities and film festival premiere and a commercial premiere. The very first time we screened it was probably for a test audience, you know, before it even really premiered. But the biggest premiere was at the first film festival we did, which was in San Jose, California. They filled up this theater with it was about 1,200 people that all watched the movie at the same time. That's great. Which is, it's astounding to watch that many people watch your movie. So, uh, Roger, before we let you go, um, tell people to give us money. You should give these guys, Ross and Carrie, money more than you would even give a church. <laughs> and what is the percentage of tithing that someone is supposed to give? Oh, 10%. 10% for the Mormons. Of their income? Yeah. Is that yes. before or after taxes? Uh, before. 10% of the gross. Okay. We don't ask for that. Let's give, how about 10% of your net? To Ross and Carrie. <laughs> awesome. We're cheaper than, than the Mormons. We're, we're definitely cheaper oh, than the Mormons. Yeah, everyone's cheaper. Well, Roger, thanks for being on our show. It talking was to awesome. us. Awesome. Thank you very much. On a scale of 1 to 10, how great was it? Uh, 3911. Oh, shit. Yes. You can buy The Nature of Existence at thenatureofexistence.com, where you can also find clips, tour dates, and the 85 questions that might challenge your view of your own existence. Our producer is Ian Kramer. Our theme music is written and performed by Brian Keith Dalton of Mr. Deity. Go to MrDeity.com to see more. And Roger, do you have one final word of wisdom? Preferably in the voice of someone who's pooping. <laughs> <laughs> my wisdom is always going to be, you know, buy my DVD, The Nature of Existence. There it is. At TheNatureOfExistence.com. Buy it now. <laughs> <laughs>